The text for this morning's service is from 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Let's read that. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. After the sermon, we will sing from hymn 8, the stanzas 1, 7, and 14. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, that includes you, boys and girls, Once in a while, a newspaper article will appear wherein the power of prayer is ridiculed. They will say that those who pray are not any better off than those who do not. Miracles don't just happen. Some will even supply so-called scientific proof. In order to prove their point, they will conduct studies of groups of people diagnosed with some terminal illness whom they divide into two groups, those who pray for healing and let others pray for them and those who do without prayer. The inevitable conclusion is that the two groups are not any different from each other. The one group did not have an advantage over the other. And so according to them, prayer is worthless. You might as well pray to your dead grandfather or to a rock. It's all the same. They will also come to the conclusion that none of the other claims of the effectiveness of prayer can be scientifically verified either. Take, for example, the simple claim that prayer connects us with God. A recent article in a newspaper stated, while this claim may have religious or philosophical implications, it doesn't specify any effect that we could measure in the physical world. How can we tell when someone is more connected to God? And so they studied many other phenomena with regard to prayer. How do you deal with such attacks? There may be some among us who think that there is some truth to these claims. They will think about those people who have prayed for certain things, especially for healing, and whose prayers were not answered. And so, does God really hear prayer? Is prayer really effective? And does it really have the power that James claims it has? Or is it all a fraud? Well, brothers and sisters, this morning we will see that prayer is indeed very powerful and effective. We will see even that without the prayer of the righteous by faith, God will not act. Without the prayers of the church, God will not fulfill his promises and God will not execute his wrath. The theme for this morning's service is as follows. The prayer of a righteous man, just like the prayer of Elijah, is very powerful and effective. And then we will see two things. We will first look at Ahab's ungodly rule And secondly, 
Elijah's powerful prayer. If there ever was a time for the need of God's intervention, it was during the reign of Ahab. It was a very wicked time. And it greatly troubled the righteous soul of Elijah or Elijah the Tishbite. It was only 57 years since the time of the split of the kingdom of Israel, at which time Jeroboam rebelled and broke with his brothers of Judah and Benjamin. But a lot has happened since then. The ten northern tribes had seen many civil wars, wherein several hundreds of thousands of people were killed. The one king was murdered by the next And so during those years, two dynasties were eradicated altogether through murder. The northern kingdom, by and large, had also ceased to serve the Lord. It was in constant rebellion against him. But now with Ahab, things go from bad to worse. Whereas the former kings of Israel only perpetuated the sin of Jeroboam, that is the sin of calf worship, the worship of the Lord under the image of an ox, Ahab was not satisfied with this. He went much further. Ahab was the son of Omri, who was himself a wicked king. Omri was an ambitious man and politically astute. He built the city of Samaria and made it more beautiful than Jerusalem itself. Isaiah, in chapter 28, verse 1, calls Samaria a glorious beauty set on the head of a fertile valley. Omri also had great ambitions for the northern kingdom beyond its borders and made all kinds of alliances with foreign nations and also with his brother Judah in order to achieve his own ends. One of the alliances that he made was with Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians, also known as the Phoenicians. This was very astute for the Phoenicians, who were a seafaring nation, had influence and power all over the world of that day. In order to advance that cause, he had his son Ahab marry the king's daughter Jezebel. She was as pagan as they come and wanted nothing to do with the God of Israel. She would like nothing better than that the worship of God would be eradicated. The Sidonians, the Phoenicians, they were a particularly idolatrous people. They made Baal their principal deity. He was worshipped as the sun god, as the god of life and fertility. Originally, this pagan god was symbolized by a pagan tree. The Sidonian king, Hiram, who was a contemporary of David and Solomon, went one further and built the golden pillar in the temple of Tyre, the capital of Phoenicia. The golden pillar is much more flattering to the god than a tree trunk. Ahab made a duplicate of that pillar and erected it in the city of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. Furthermore, Ahab also set up the Asherah pole that was in honor of the goddess Astarte. After all, Baal also needed a wife. 
to add injury to insult, he also appointed numerous priests to maintain the worship of Baal. Another thing that Ahab did was to rebuild Jericho. The Lord God had mentioned to Joshua that that city was not allowed to be rebuilt. Ahab took no notice. He went right ahead anyway. But then we see fulfilled the curse mentioned in Joshua 16 verse 7. And the builder loses both his oldest and his youngest sons. And by rebuilding Jericho, Ahab wanted to rewrite history. The ruins of Jericho served as a reminder to God's people how he had rescued them from Egypt and brought them miraculously into the promised land. How he had defeated the enemies before them. Ahab wanted to erase that memory. For that reason, he wanted Jericho to be rebuilt. And he also wanted it to be rebuilt in order to have a fort from which he could protect Israel from the Moabites. But now that is what those who lead unrepentant lives do. They do not want to deal with the past and they want to forge ahead on their own. For if you examine your past, then you have to examine yourself. You have to see what you are doing, where you are going. And that would also mean that you would have to, to examine your own motivations. And that's true in our own lives as well. And those with psychological problems often have difficulties with their past. They want to be able to forget and they want to pretend certain things didn't happen. But you can not re-erase the past. If you want to function as a person, and even as a nation for that matter, then you have to deal with where you came from, with your roots, with your history. Ahab wanted nothing to do with Israel's past. He wanted to forge a new path. And that was his undoing. It was not that Ahab was totally against the worship of the Lord God, the God of Israel. At least it did not appear that way. He did pay lip service to him. That is clear, for example, from the names that he gave his children. They were Israelite names that included the Lord's name. He did not give them pagan names. As we can read in 1 Kings 18, verse 3, he also had Obadiah in his employ as the one who is in charge of his palace. Obadiah, it says in that passage, was a devout believer of the Lord. Ahab at times even asked the advice of the prophets of the Lord. No doubt Ahab was pricked in his conscience as he thought about the things that he was doing. He knew too much about the Lord God. And so Ahab was a conflicted man. But it was especially Jezebel who, according to 1 Kings 21 verse 25, urged him on. But as he pursues his political ambitions, he suspends his conscience. Ultimately, religion did not interest him. He was interested in himself. He was interested only in achieving his own ends, by hook or by crook. The problem with Ahab was that he was in love with the things of this world. 
He was in love with the beauty that this physical world had to offer. And that is why he built an opulent palace in Samaria, which was inlaid with ivory, as we read in Kings. He loved to be the center of attention, and he loved to be a major player in the world, and he loved all his comfort. It is those kinds of things that drove him. And it is those things that also made him suspend his conscience. Earthly splendor was much more important to him than divine splendor. He was there to create his own glory rather than to reflect and to seek the glory of God. Outside of Israel, Ahab had a good name. In 1 Kings 20, verse 31, we read that the king of Aram refers to him positively. He speaks to him about uh, as, as him as a merciful king. He was admired. He was going places. The northern tribes were becoming a nation to be reckoned with. And it was all due to the clever machinations of Ahab. He was on top of the world, or so he thought. It is at this point that the prophet Elijah enters the picture. He appears unexpectedly. In 1 Kings 17, verse 1, it is the first time that he is mentioned. Normally, a prophet is first introduced. We are given a bit of background about his family, etc. That's not the case here. We do not know anything about him except that he is a a Tishbite from Gilead. Perhaps the Holy Spirit wants to indicate by the abruptness of his appearance the urgency of the situation. And we read in the text that he spoke directly to Ahab. That was something quite daring. He went, as it were, right into the lion's den. For he knows that he is not welcome there. On the contrary, he knows that anybody who speaks against the king puts his life in danger. But nevertheless, he goes to Samaria, the center of rebellion against God, and he presents himself at the opulent palace of the king of Israel. And then he rebukes Ahab in no uncertain terms. He begins by stating, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Every word here is significant. First of all, he uses the word Lord. Please note that every letter is capitalized. Whenever you see that, then you know that the Hebrew word Yahweh is used. The name Yahweh is used to accentuate God's covenant relationship with his people. It is the name he used when he spoke for the first time to Moses in the burning bush. The name means I am. The name refers to his presence, to his past, and to the future. It refers to the fact that he is alive. It refers to the fact that he is the only eternal God. Ahab had treated God as if he did not exist. He believed that it did not matter what God you believed in, as long as as it furthers your own ambitions. Well, says Elijah, he is alive. He is present now. To make sure that he gets the point, he even adds that he lives. There stands Elijah before the king of Israel, who is attired in all his glory, 
and who is surrounded by his priests to Baal, dressed in all their glory, in their silken, expensive robes. Elijah, however, as we know from other scripture passages, is dressed in a simple, hairy animal's skin with a leather girdle. He comes from the backcountry of Gilead. Gilead was a territory on the other side of the Jordan. It was rugged mountain country. It was not the land of the sophisticated. It was a country of hunters and fishermen and farmers. Elijah did not appear as a refined man. However, inwardly he was more refined than the opulent king and all his entourage with his splendor combined. Elijah was full of confidence that the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, was with him all the way. That is also clear from what he says. For he says that he serves that God. Other translations have that he stands before him. In other words, he knows himself to be in God's presence. He is one of his servants that does his bidding. When he speaks, it is as if God himself speaks. How can Elijah be so confident? It doesn't say anywhere that the Lord spoke to him directly and commanded him to bring these words to Ahab. That is usually the case when prophets come with the proclamations. Elijah, however, knows the word of God. He knows his scriptures. He knows what the Lord said just before they came into the promised land, namely that he will provide for them and send them rain in its season. But he also knows that if they do not obey the Lord God, that then, as it says in Deuteronomy 11, verse 17, his anger will burn against them, and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain, and so that the ground will not yield its produce. When he speaks his judgment upon Ahab, all Elijah is doing is speaking the word of God. All he is doing is stating unequivocally what the Lord God himself has said in his word. Elijah, brothers and sisters, basically had no choice. He had to act as he did. How could he do otherwise? For normally you would pray for God's blessings, including the blessings on the crop. That's what we would do. For that is what God promises to give to his people. But... He promises that to you only if you are obedient. But how could Elijah pray for blessings under these circumstances? How can you pray for blessings when the leadership of the nations and the vast majority of God's people is itself in rebellion against God? Elijah had to pray for the execution of God's justice. For he wants repentance. He wants his name to be honored. This was a critical time in the history of God's people. The northern kingdom was about to totally sever their relationship with the Lord their God. There were only a few people who were still serving the Lord. For indeed there are still those alive who lived still during the reign of Solomon. Before the kingdom was split. People in their late 60s and older would have observed how far the northern kingdom has fallen. 
if things continued the way that they were going, then there would be no one left in Israel to serve the Lord. And that is why Elijah was compelled to go to Ahab to come with God's curse. He told him that within the next few years there will be neither dew nor rain. That is what God had said in his own word. And therefore Elijah also knew as a certainty that that would happen. And that, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, is what prayer is. It is recalling the word of God as it applies in any situation. And God will hear such a prayer. There is no doubt. That's also the way it is for us. For it says in James that Elijah was a man just like us. He is not any different from you and from me. When you pray, then you also do that to keep keeping in mind what God says in his word. You keep in mind his promises to those who want to serve him and who believe in him. But you also keep in mind the curse that is upon those who do not want to serve him. An effective prayer can only be done by those who are in tune with the word of God, to those who believe. It was Elijah's hope that Ahab and the rest of the people would repent. But sometimes drastic measures are needed in order to bring others to repentance. That was certainly the case here. Ahab thought that God was impotent and that he would not act. He thought that he could do whatever he wanted without incurring God's wrath. And so Ahab had to realize that God does act. He had to realize the implications, not just for himself, but also for God's people, that if they continue to go in the way that they were going, God's final curse would come upon them, and they would be totally alienated from the Lord God, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. The Lord God only wants a people around him who want to glorify him. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, our prayers have to do with our covenant relationship with the Lord our God. When we pray, then we are in direct communication with him. Prayer is an expression of the covenant relationship that exists between us. We pray on the basis of what God has told us in his, in his word that would take place. And just look at all the things that have taken place. The church prayed for hundreds upon hundreds of years for the coming of the Messiah. And the Messiah came. And now he is seated at the right hand of God to intercede for us. Through him we may have the forgiveness of sins. You may be sure of that. And the prayer of a righteous man is very effective. Without our prayers, we can even say, this world would cease to exist right now. For that is why this creation was made in the first place. It was made to his honor and glory. And when man does not acknowledge that, then God's purposes have been thwarted. And that may not happen. Indeed, that cannot happen. For whatever God has in mind for this world will take place. When Elijah prayed that it would not rain, that is indeed what happened. 
and we may be sure that whatever we pray for will also be fulfilled. We can trust in God that he will hear us as long as we pray in accordance with his will. But it may not happen exactly at the time that we want or in a matter in which we ourselves expect. But God does promise that he will hear our prayers. But you may say, can we put ourselves on the same level as Elijah? Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament. We cannot expect that God will hear us in the same way, can we? Yes, brothers and sisters, we can, without a doubt. As a matter of fact, God will not execute his justice without the prayers of the saints. That is clear, for example, from Revelation 8. We read there that God executes his judgment only because of the prayers of the saints. For it says that the angel of the Lord offered up the prayers of the saints together with the incense, and that he filled the censer with fire from the golden altar before the Lord, and that he hurled it upon the earth. At this time there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquakes. It was God's judgment upon those who do not want to repent from their sins, and it was because of the prayers of the saints that God acted. Does that mean then that whatever we pray for, as long as it's promised in God's word, that it will then immediately happen? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It is true that God listens only to the prayers of believers, just like with Elijah. And the church has to know that when she prays, that then her prayer is heard and that it is very powerful. That's also the case with individual believers. With Elijah, God's word was immediately executed. Elijah was completely in tune, not only with God's plan, but also with God's timing. God worked that prayer in his heart. Elijah was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But when we speak about inspiration today, we speak about the inspiration of all of God's word. And the prophecies in God's word have their fulfillment in different stages and in different times. We don't know exactly when God is going to execute his plan. We don't know either in what way God is going to save us from calamities. It may be that we want certain things to happen right now. But it doesn't mean that God's time is ripe yet. For we have to leave open the possibility of repentance The Lord God is patient also with us, and he has a certain plan with us. The same thing is true with regard to our personal prayers for healing. God is indeed the God of miracles, and he can, if he wants, when we are terminally ill, save us from the impending death. He can, and he does, perform miracles. But that does not mean that that will happen at a specific point in time according to our schedule. Paul also prayed for the removal of the thorn in his flesh. But that did not happen either. But that did not mean that God did not save him and that he did not keep him from harm. That did not mean that he did not hear his prayer. Paul is right now experiencing 
indestructibility. He is now tasting eternal life with his Father in heaven. Ultimately, God fulfills his promises. But he does that in his time. Unbelievers do not understand the power of prayer. As a matter of fact, they have no clue what prayer is all about. Prayer is only for those who believe and who are in a covenant relationship with the Lord their God. The statistical data of scientists are bunk. They base their scientific data on preconceived conceptions. They only prove what they set out to prove. They start out as unbelievers, and they are confirmed as unbelievers. That is because they do not want to listen to the voice of God. For that reason, their methodology is flawed from from the very start. Such flaws are seen in their analysis in their analysis of those who pray also to Buddha or to Allah or those who pray for silly things such as the winning of a football game. Does God hear those kinds of prayers? Can you scientifically prove prayer? It's impossible. It's a matter of faith. It is a matter of understanding and of applying God's word. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, The Lord, our God, is a God full of purpose. He rules all things. And he is going to bring this world to its final destination. And all those who have not repented from their sins and have ridiculed God and his people and who have persecuted them, they will experience God's wrath if they do not repent. The Lord, our God, is a God of justice. He will not allow his name to be blasphemed. He will vindicate himself. And he will also vindicate his children. And he will punish those who blatantly and deliberately go against him and who do not want to repent. But in the midst of all this, we as children of the Lord God will be preserved. Just like he preserved Elijah in spite of the danger that he found himself in. Elijah was not afraid. And we do not have to be afraid either. The Lord God will rescue us. And so pray to him when you are afraid. Pray to him when you are in difficulty. He will hear you. He will answer your prayer. There is no doubt about it. Amen.